Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to see you again on this Sunday morning. Uh, not quite as pretty of a morning as it was uh, last week, but it's good to be uh, together again. So I hope everyone is doing well. And uh, as people continue to join in, that we'll uh, be able, as we do every week, to make the best of our situation and to spend some time together around God's word. We continue to pray for you. And uh, before we pray, there's uh, even just to remind you, I sent this out on an email, uh, but to remind you of uh, a couple of prayer requests, or actually in one that wasn't on the email. Uh, that is Joe Whiting. You know, for those, some of you don't know him, most of you do, continue to pray for him. Uh, this has been a really challenging recovery time, and there's been uh, recently uh, some relapses. Uh, in other words, he was making some improvements in areas, and he seems like he's going backwards. So, and that can be discouraging. Joe's not a discouraged person, so for him to be discouraged at all, uh, you know, says something. So let's let's remember to be in prayer for him. Remember as well, Jim Consiglio's wife Wilhelmina, who uh, was diagnosed again with the COVID nineteen uh, pneumonia, and so as far as I know, as of right now, uh, she doesn't have a fever. The last I heard, anyway. Um, and we want to pray that that would stay that way. Otherwise, she'll have to go into the hospital. And uh, remember to pray as well. Uh, Lolita uh, called, and I spoke to her a little bit this week. And she's going to be traveling with Shannon out to see her sister, who is uh, Catholic and uh, is not doing well and doesn't have much time to uh, probably probably to live. So let's remember Lolita and uh, her sister and uh, her family at this time. And there are no doubt other things uh, to pray for. I want to encourage you again, if you haven't, many of you have, and it's been it's been really good to see that. But if you haven't, uh, plan on joining us for uh, Wednesday evening prayer led by Mike White. Uh, it's, it's a good time for us to come together and pray and, and to hear of many other things uh, going on in people's lives that we can uh, be lifting up together as a church. And there was the First Lady's devotional uh, study, uh, study devotional this past Saturday, uh, which which went really well. There were quite a few ladies that were part of it. It was quite encouraging. So uh, come back if you were there. And if you didn't join, then plan on uh, joining in the future. And of course, our men's study on Thursday night, you can always join in. Any of you men who uh, haven't been able to, but may, may be able to now. And uh, we've just had a really good time looking over principles of hermeneutics and, and applying it, going to specific passages and uh, applying these principles, uh, which has been, again, really, really encouraging and really good. So there are, those are some things we're doing together. There's, of course, always those opportunities that you have to, to reach out to one another and to uh, make phone calls and so forth. Uh, remember as well, actually, before I forget, Jessica Harbert, who is scheduled for her cesarean section. She is uh, overdue. And so we want to just remember them to bring this uh, little one, Anastasia, into the world. All right. With that, uh, let me open us up in a word of prayer, and then I'll introduce uh, what we're going to look at this morning and really uh, a topic that we're going to look at over at least uh, the next few weeks. Um, but why don't you? we begin by you uh, praying with me. Father, we thank you again for the time that we have to gather together. Um, and we pray 
Uh, for each of these requests that were mentioned, we asked for Wilhelmina that you would um, heal her, that she would be restored in health. But we know that the ultimate purpose isn't restoration of health. It is that we grow nearer to you in fellowship, that our faith increases in trust, um, that we see your good hand and live joyfully under your providence. Um, so we know that's the ultimate uh, goal, but Lord, we, we also know you hear our prayers and uh, we ask that you would preserve her from getting a, a fever and uh, Lord, in whatever you have ordained that she would be well cared for and uh, ultimately be restored. And Father, we do pray for Lolita as she travels. Keep her and Shannon safe and particularly Lolita in a weakened state from contracting, getting sick. We ask for her sister, Lord, that she would come to understand the gospel. Uh, and Lord, we may not know what she fully understands and is committed to, but we would ask you to show mercy uh, to her. Pray that you be with uh, Jason and Jessica, Jessica particularly, um, that they would have a full confidence in the joy of anticipation of this life that you have given to them and that, that she would be brought safely uh, into this world. So we pray for that as well. Lord, help us as a fellowship to and a church to be faithful and coming together and laying hold of the opportunities that you do give us to meet with one another. And Father, we do continue to pray for our leaders and ask that you would give them wisdom. There is no authority but what you've given. And so as they make decisions and as we transition back into somewhat of a, a kind of normalcy, um, that you would give them wisdom and, uh, and Lord, that that you would uh, remove uh, these, these circumstances that are causing hardship uh, for so many. And Father, we ask now as we come to your word that you would bless us in the, in the few moments that we have together, that you would give us understanding, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would teach us wisdom, that you would renew our minds, that you would shape our affections uh, to be in line with your purposes as you reveal them to us in scripture and all centered on your glorious work in the death and the resurrection and the return of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So uh, what are we this uh, morning? We're going to introduce uh, a topic that we'll look at uh, over the next uh, several weeks. I'm not quite sure how long it will go. Uh, but it is uh, what what happens to us when we die. The, the first part of that question that we'll look at this morning is what's known as the intermediate state. Uh, then we'll look at the millennial kingdom, and then we'll look at uh, heaven. And, and part of the reason for moving in this direction is simply, in one sense, because it's come up so often in some of the Psalms that we've looked at. that We've, we've only touched on it, but yet the idea, the concept of this future hope uh, that uh, all of God's people have waited for throughout the ages uh, continues to come up. And so it took, seemed good to take some time to consider that uh, a little bit more deeply. And also several of the, the uh, passages and topics that I had planned on looking at uh, before we get to the book of Ecclesiastes uh, seem not to be as important right now as maybe this one, maybe this one it, as, uh, to encourage our hearts. So this morning, I want to begin by looking at uh, briefly, uh, and I'm going to try to uh, cover all of this in one in one message. So pray for me that I'll know what to skip over along the way. Uh, but 
Uh, I want to look at what is the immediate state. And so this is the answer, an answer to the question, uh, what happens to a person when they die? What happens to you and me when we will close our eyes for the last time on earth? What, what happens to our soul? What is our experience immediately once we exit this world and into the next? Well, if we were to step back and look at what happens on the human side, we'd say that uh, the body is laid in the grave. And as that happens, there's uh, well-dressed friends and people around uh, talking silently and maybe a message is given, prayers are given. Uh, even if one is, usually that could be a memorial service if somebody is uh, cremated, but if someone around the grave site, they'd see that casket go into the ground and then everybody would, uh, or they would see the casket there, there'd be some words said, everybody would leave and then the casket would go into the ground and that would be it. And then there'd be a headstone placed there. And that's, that's kind of what we would experience or what others would experience from this side. But, but what happens to us? The, the body is in the casket or the body is uh, cremated. Uh, what, what happens to our person? Uh, do we uh, go out of non-existence? Um, where are we? What are we experiencing at that time? Well, again, that's, that is the question that faces us. Scripture teaches us that in the future, there is a resurrection of our bodies. But until that time... Uh, where are we? And that is, of course, then a topic known as the intermediate state, which simply refers to the state of our existence between the time that we die until the time that we receive our resurrection bodies. Now, the reality is that there's not a whole lot of information given to us by God uh, on this topic. And therefore, it's, it's good to heed, uh, to be cautious and to heed a warning that came from Calvin a long time ago. Uh, about spe about speaking to, to matters that scripture uh, doesn't give a lot of information on. And he said this, uh, to pry curiously into their immediate state is neither lawful nor expedient. Many greatly torment themselves with discussing what place they occupy and whether or not they already enjoy celestial glory. It is foolish and rash to inquire into hidden things farther than God permits us to know. What teacher or doctor will reveal to us what God has concealed? So that's, that's some wise counsel uh, by Calvin. In other words, we can only go so far as scripture allows us to go. And we can only say what God has given us to say about the matter. So we want to be careful uh, here and, and not speculate, but, but stay firmly within the bounds of scripture. Uh, that being said, it isn't wrong, just as a preliminary remark, to speak of a person who dies of going immediately to heaven or hell. For that, that is the ultimate end of each person, though in one real sense, those are yet future realities. But when we think of a believer in heaven or an unbeliever in hell, uh, even though those yet may be future realities, the end, the end of this age, uh, the, the ultimate reality is different only in degree, not in kind. So in other words, when a believer dies, while the full reality and scope of heaven is yet waiting for the new heavens and the new earth and resurrection bodies, uh, we are in the presence of God and we are freed from the burden of sin. And while there might be the ultimate judgment for the wicked in resurrected 
bodies to be fit for punishment, uh, they are yet in a place of bearing the consequences for unrepented sin. So it's not wrong to say that, though in a technical sense, those are, those are realities future still to us, heaven and hell, in their ultimate experience. So that being said, I want to discuss this topic under, under three very broad headings. Um, and the first is simply this. The first point is to say that there is an intermediate state. There is a particular existence that we experience uh, uh, from the point we die to in, that, until we wait the resurrection, until the resurrection actually happens. Uh, while the view of life after death was certainly uh, known in the Old Testament, it was a little less defined, it was a little less clear, it was a little fuzzier than it is for us. And, and often, to the Old Testament saints, uh, it was described in very earthly terms, or that is to say, from the perspective of those who remained on earth. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Uh, don't turn there, I'm going to just read them to you. Isaiah 38, 18 says this, For Sheol cannot thank you, death cannot praise you, those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. In other words, merely recognizing that all of these uh, things that people do on earth, praise and give glory to God, cannot be done if they're no longer here, they're dead. Psalm 6.5 says, There is no mention of you in death in Sheol. Who will give you thanks? Not speaking of non-existence there. He's merely saying that when a person is no longer here, they can no, offer, no longer offer to him, to God, the thanks and the praise uh, that God's people want to do here. Uh, nonetheless, even though there, there are those kind of statements viewed from the perspective of those still on earth, there was a clear distinction, even in the Old Testament, that there was an ultimate end of the righteous and the wicked that involved a continual existence of either blessing or of judgment. Let me, let me give you some few examples. Again, I'm just going to read these passages to you. There's Many more that could be added. Here's a few select ones. Psalm 49, 14 through 15. As sheep are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. And their form shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Psalm 73, 24. With your counsel, you will guide me, and afterward, Receive me to glory. Psalm 16.10, which is used by Peter to say it referred specifically to the resurrection of the Messiah. Psalm 16.10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And then later he says in that passage that in your presence is fullness of joy. Ultimately, that referred to the resurrection of the Messiah and an entrance into glory, which is where God's people will be with him, those redeemed in Christ. Hebrews 11 says this, referring to Old Testament saints. I think I read this uh, last week, but let me remind you of it. It says, all of these died in faith, speaking of these Old Testament believers, the ones mentioned uh, before here. He says, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
Uh, for those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which, from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, this is the key verse, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. In other words, they knew that any sacrifice that they made here on earth was not a loss of their ultimate good because God had prepared something for them better after they left this earth and went to be with him. So they clearly understood that there was existence and there was life outside of what was experienced here on earth. In other words, this was not the end. And they had in the Old Testament a clear understanding of the resurrection. Not as clear as we would gain later, but they clearly understood that there would be a resurrection for both the righteous and the wicked. Uh, let me give you just one passage. You're familiar with this, but in Daniel chapter 12, uh, he says this in verse 2. He says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Job 19 verses 25 through 27 makes some similar remarks. And this same idea of there being a future resurrection is, uh, of course, carried over and expanded on in the New Testament. In John chapter 5, speaking at, to, at this point, what would have been Old Covenant believers, he says uh, this in verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. So the idea of a resurrection of the righteous and a resurrection of the judgment was not a new idea. What made that new from the lips of Jesus is that this resurrection is directly connected and explicitly connected to the work of Christ, the work of the Messiah, the work of the Son. That was the new element. But in all of these cases, the resurrection is yet a future event. It's something that has not yet taken place. And so again, acknowledging that there is yet some existence of those who have died who are waiting for this event. Now, as I noted in the Old Testament, the most common way to refer or the most common references to this time uh, are of Sheol and Hades, Sheol and Hades. So the dead are said to be in Sheol or to be in Hades. They both are used as a final place, uh, actually of both the righteous and the wicked, the righteous and the unrighteous. Uh, there wasn't uh, a clear distinction or any kind of consistent distinction in the Old Testament. That distinction would become clearer uh, in the New Testament after the appearing of Christ. Uh, and then that point, because Christ brought a lot of clarity to the understanding of hell and judgment and to the realities of this resurrection life, that, of course, uh, brought clarity to these ideas. Actually, before you get into the New Testament, the idea of Hades in the intertestinal period had already come to be more specifically associated to a place where the unrighteous were, a place of, of judgment. Uh, but even here, it is only seen as a temporary place. It's only seen as a temporary place. So in other words, Hades isn't the ultimate place uh, of judgment. Even that is temporary. 
Uh, this is picked up again in Revelation chapter 20. It says both death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And so part of the clarity of the New Testament is understanding that there is a judgment that goes beyond even the present state of Hades uh, for the wicked. Uh, and also popular in Jewish thought is that all souls were simply in holding in Sheol or Hades. They're just kind of waiting there. So everybody's kind of mixed in together. Some even would say, see, that is when Christ uh, in Second Peter or excuse me, First Peter three, where he went down and he preached the gospel, that that was also the time of the release of those Old Testament saints who were being held in Hades. Uh, but now we're released to, to go up to heaven. And so there, there are those kind of ideas. Uh, one described it this way. The prevalent idea, speaking of the Jewish idea, was that all souls after death descended into Sheol and there remained in expectation of the coming of the Messiah. When he came, it was expected that the Jews, or at least the faithful, would be raised from the dead and made partakers of all the glories and blessedness of the Messiah's reign. And, and interestingly, even moving into the third century AD, there was the idea in some church fathers that Sheol and Hades had these uh, two compartments in which the dead resided awaiting for a future release to their final abode. Uh, one such church father in the third century AD named Hippolytus said this, uh, he said, Hades is a place in which the souls of the righteous and the unrighteous are detained uh, as left at the creation in a state of chaos to which the light of the sun never penetrates, but where perpetual darkness reigns. This place is the prison of the souls over which the angels keep watch. In Hades, there is a furnace of unquenchable fire into which no one has yet been cast. It is reserved for the banishment of the wicked at the end of the world. When the righteous will be made citizens of an eternal kingdom, the good and the bad, although both in Hades are not in the same part of it. Again, this two compartment idea. He says they enter the underworld by the same gate. When this gate is passed, the guardian angels guide the souls of the departed different ways. Uh, the righteous are guided into the right to the right to a region full of light. The wicked are constrained to take the left hand path leading to a region near the unquenchable fire. And of course, that's again, that's, they're both kept in these regions, uh, according to his thinking. The good are free from all discomfort and rejoice in expectation of their admission into heaven. The wicked are miserable in constant anticipation of their coming doom. An impassable gulf separates the abode of the righteous from that of the wicked. Here they remain until the resurrection, which he goes on to explain and defend after that. So this is kind of ideas that were floating around and uh, unclear <coughs> the idea of two compartments, some kind of waiting area and to release into the final state. Uh, those kind of ideas were popular. Some later theologians even said that that the dead are kept somewhere in the heart of the earth. And they get that language from the Lord's words in Matthew 12, 40, where he says three days and three nights. Uh, in the heart of the earth. The Messiah spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Of course, that's referring merely to his time in the grave before he, the resurrection. So there is an immediate state. An immediate state was recognized both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, but it was unclear and it was undefined. And out of that unclarity also came some wrong views. 
<clears throat> many of which, of course, are still with us today. So this is the second point. What are some of the wrong views of the intermediate state? Uh, well, one is a popular one you may have heard of, and that is a soul sleep. Some say that the soul simply goes into a sleep. It's, a, it's in a state of unconsciousness until the resurrection, until the time of Christ's return. Uh, this is popular in Seventh-day Adventists, for example. And they would take such statements as these, Psalm 115, verse 17, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence, who simply just go into a place of not non-existence, but uh, non-activity, non-consciousness is the idea uh, they, in, in their thinking on that. In Jeremiah 51, 39, the Lord in speaking to Babylon says these words, when they become heat, uh, uh, he says, I will serve them their banquet and make them drunk and they may become, he's speaking of judgment coming on Babylon, that they may become jubilant and may sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake up. Again, taken by those advocates of soul sleep is referring uh, to that. However, the problem with that idea is one that we'll look at later, statements that clearly refer to a conscious existence after death, but also, uh, consistent with the Old Testament, as already was mentioned, these are statements speaking from an earthly perspective or an earthly vantage point. In other words, someone goes down to silence. In this sense, they're no longer speaking on the earth. They have been silenced uh, in that way and so forth. So it's similar to the language of sleep in the New Testament. Uh, they have not died, but they are only asleep is a term used often to refer to believers who have died. In Acts 13, 36, uh, it says this, for David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay, speaking of his body. Jesus uses this same idea uh, in John chapter 11 when he was speaking of Lazarus who had died. He said he is not dead, he is only uh, asleep. And they're looking at it essentially from the vantage point of perception from uh, this side of, uh, the, uh, on, on, of those on the earth. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church adds uh, three immediate states as this doctrine developed within Roman Catholic theology. I'll just mention these briefly. They have one place that say when the dead die, there is the limbus patrum or the limbo of the fathers. Uh, and they describe that in this way, that it is a place and state of rest wherein the souls of the just who died before Christ's ascension were detained until he opened heaven to them, referred to as Abraham's bosom and paradise. So this is the, the place of the fathers. It's kind of this state of limbo. We, we use that sometimes uh, as a metaphor uh, that, you know, don't keep me in limbo. Don't keep me waiting. Don't keep me unexpected. Don't hold me into suspense. Uh, but they also had another one called the limbus infantum. It's the limbo of children, and it could be described in this way. It's the place where, according to Roman Catholic uh, theology, where all children and adults who leave the world without the baptism of water, blood, or desire, and therefore an original sin, are excluded from the vision of God in heaven. E they enjoy eternally a state of perfect natural happiness, knowing and loving God by the use of their natural powers. So they'd say, that's where they go. They're, they're happy, but it's not that 
full happiness that comes to believers. It's just a, a sort of mediocre kind of happiness by comparison. Uh, but even more significant in Roman Catholic theology is the idea of purgatory and the idea of purgatory. And that's what we're usually, and particularly many of you who came out of the Roman Catholic Church, are familiar with. And that is to say, purgatory, according to Romanists once said, is that a place where all those who die are not yet, are, have to pass, it's a place where they go that they have to pass through in order to be made perfect for heaven. Uh, purgatory, in other words, is an idea where the justice of God is satisfied for sins committed on earth, even by saints. And in satisfying that justice for those sins, they are then made ready to enter into the full enjoyments of heaven. Now, the problem with that is, of course, does not rest on scripture, but even within Catholic theology, they draw this primarily from an apocryphal book, which they later, uh, the Council of Trent particularly, recognized as canonical. And there's one passage there in 2 Maccabees uh, chapter 12, verses 38 through 45, in which someone by the name of Judas, upon finding uh, things consecrated to idols among dead soldiers uh, in the Maccabean revolt, which was something that uh, is described in Daniel chapter 11, it took place in the interim intertestinal period, uh, that he has said that they sought for prayers to be made on their behalf and took up a sin, sin offering and sent it to Jerusalem in hopes that it would alleviate their suffering, these who sinned uh, before they died, who sinned with the sin of idolatry. And so from that a somewhat obscure passage in 2 Maccabees, an apocryphal work, is born or given the idea of purgatory, of purgatory. There are, of course, some places in Scripture that we'll note later uh, where they try to draw that from. But that's that's one of the main uh, ideas where it came from. Uh, purgatory teaches this, the following. And I'm only going to mention these briefly, that it is a place of suffering, the torments of real fire designed to purify the sufferer for sins he committed on earth. That I already mentioned it's it's to, it's the justice of God for those sins the believer committed on earth and it prepares them to be ready for heaven. Uh, second, that the amount of suffering someone experiences in purgatory, again, according to Catholic doctrine, uh, depends on how bad and how many of the sins they committed on earth. Uh, there's no set time limit then. It could be uh, a few hours or a thousand years. Uh, they also teach that in purgatory, those who are there can be helped through prayers, good works, celebration of mass, or even monetary gifts given to the church by those who are still here. So in other words, a, a faithful Catholic who has a loved one in purgatory can uh, do these certain good things and lessen the time that this loved one has to spend in punishment. And finally, they teach that earthly uh, ecclesiastical powers, bishops and such, have power, some kind of authority or influence as well over those who are in purgatory. One stated it this way, that purgatory is under the power of the keys, that is the authority given to the church. Uh, that it is, it is the prerogative of the authorities of the church at their discretion to remit entirely or partially the penalty of sins under which the souls there detained are suffering. Of course, we may ask why they don't do this for everyone. 
Now, just to leave this quickly, the problem with these views are, are many, but uh, some of the most significant are this. One, it is a denial of the doctrine of justification. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And it, what it does, is, which is one of the more central and egregious areas of Catholic theology, is that it locates righteousness in the person rather than in the completed work of the Jesus Christ. It makes Christ in his work the beginning of righteousness for the saint, that, but the, the righteousness has to be completed. That righteousness that will allow them in heaven has to be completed by the person, the individual themselves, of course, through the church and so on and so forth. And so it denies justification based completely and solely on the finished work of Christ. The reformers referred to that as an alien righteousness. In other words, the righteousness that brings us into complete and full reconciliation with God is totally 100% completely the righteousness of Christ. And by faith, God declares us to be in a standing of righteousness with him based totally, completely, and wholly on the finished work of Christ. First John says, Christ who is our righteousness. And so purgatory, of course, utterly obliterates that idea. More to be said about that, but secondly, it gives immense power to the church and control over the people. It's a very effective and a very powerful and a very convenient doctrine to wield control over others. Who wouldn't want to release a loved one from suffering in the afterlife? Who wouldn't want to make sacrifices here and give money and make contributions to the church so that they could be alleviated of some of their suffering? What immense power it gives to ecclesiastical authorities to be able to have control over the amount of suffering of loved ones uh, in this place of punishment. It's a completely manipulative and evil doctrine based nowhere in scripture and that denies the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is grounded as noted in church tradition, not in scripture. So what can really be said? So, so there is an intermediate state. There, there were fuzzy ideas of this uh, in the Old Testament and even in by some later New Testament writers, uh, there is a, a definition of the immediate state that clearly is wrong and doesn't square with scripture, such as soul sleep and purgatory and, and other ideas. But, but that being said, what is the intermediate state? What does scripture tell us about what happens when we die? Well, let me list to you several points, several, several points. The first is this. These are scriptures. This is the third category. Scriptures, descriptions of the intermediate state. The first is this. Scripture acknowledges and states very clearly that when we die, there is a separation of the body and the spirit or the soul. There is a separation of the body uh, from the spirit and the soul. And so while these are intertwined, we are spiritual beings, they are distinct. Who we are as a physical entity and who we are as a spiritual being. 
Let me give you one passage, Ecclesiastes, or a couple of passages. Ecclesiastes 12, 7 says this. Uh, then the dust, speaking of death, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. The spirit will return to God who gave it. So the body goes back into dust. From dust you came, from dust you shall return, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, but the spirit, the spirit also this lifts, goes upward back to God who gave it. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. Uh, this actually referring to Christ and his death uh, on the cross says this. It says it in other gospel places too, but Matthew 27, 50 says this. And Jesus, this is after having made atonement for sin, it says this in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And yielded up his spirit. Some take that as the Holy Spirit. Um, I do not go there. But he yielded up his spirit. In other words, he yielded up his life. His, and he was separated so that the body that was on the cross at that point was merely flesh. He was not present. The incarnate son of God was not present. He had departed. Let me give you just one more. In Acts chapter 7, uh, speaking of Stephen, if you remember Stephen, who was stoned by the Jews after preaching to them the gospel, it says this, that when they went on stoning Stephen in verse 59 of Acts chapter 7, uh, as he called on the Lord and he said this, so these are the words of Stephen, uh, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, receive my spirit. And so if we were there observing this event, after Stephen was stoned, he was bloody mess lying on the ground. They, they would have taken his body away, but Stephen was no longer there. His spirit had departed. And so this is consistent uh, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that there is a separation of the body and of the spirit. And so this, the soul is distinct from the body. And in some sense is the truer part of our humanness. It is that, that part of us, our personhood, that interacts with the world and interacts with God even while we're in the body. And that's why, for example, because that is the part where we experience uh, our relationship with God and interact with the world and so forth, that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, do not fear those who kill the body, who can only deal with you physically, but rather him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Uh, in other words, take more seriously, not merely what happens to the body, but also what the condition of the soul is upon death. So there is a separation from the body and the spirit, our spiritual reality, our, you could say our true personhood. Uh, but this doesn't mean then, or does it mean that we're flea floating kind of spirits around? We just become like vapor or smoke? No, they're, they're, we're not merely free floating spirits at this point. Um, but we are no longer in a physical state. We are no longer in a physical state. So, what kind of state are we in? Do we have a body? Do we have some kind of physical existence? Well, one of the clearest and, and actually quite 
uh, well, passages in the New Testament that addresses this or is 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Now, now this would take uh, a long time to go into the details. There's, 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 there's quite a bit of complexities in this passage and a variety of different views on different aspects here that are both technical and theological. And so uh, we're clearly not going to get into all of that uh, this morning. But let me read it to you and just uh, make a couple of general comments. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, of course, Paul is here building on what he had just said, a, a passage that we're uh, more familiar with, where he says, we look at the things not which are seen, but the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And then he goes right in, he says, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 2, for indeed, in this implied house, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. Verse 4, for indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Uh, what is he talking about? You look at verse one, we know that if the earthly tent, which is clearly here a reference to his body, this physical existence uh, that we have here, if this earthly tent which is our house is torn down. We have a building from God, a house made without hands. Now there again are a variety of uh, understandings of this. Some uh, say that we receive a, a kind of a second body that's an intermediate body between what we have now and what we'll have in the resurrection. Uh, and there are a variety of other, some saying that this uh, refers to a kind of a connection and conformity to this glorified body of Christ and, and, and other things. What is he referring to here? What is he referring to here? Well, outside of all of the discussion on it and acknowledging that this passage actually probably adds more mystery than it does clarity uh, to the reality of our intermediate state, it's best to understand that in Paul saying that we have a building from God, a dwelling from heaven, that he is, and in, in fact, this is pretty strong here, that he's referring to the resurrection body. He's referring to the resurrection body. So when it says, he, we're, this when this one is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, even there is not referring even by that present tense saying that we have it he's not referring to some kind of intermediate body but he's speaking confidently of the reality of saying look even though we won't have this body we can be assured that we won't forever remain disembodied but we have a promise from god this promise is what he laid out in detail in first corinthians 15 and in other places we have a resurrection body so he's not saying there's some kind of third body that we have in other words this body under the condition of sin an intermediate body while we wait then our third body the glorified body that's that's nowhere taught that's not what he's saying here it's not what he's saying here he's referring he knows of only two bodies and scripture knows of only two bodies this body that we have currently that we shed at death and this future body of the uh, that we will receive in the resurrection and so what is he saying here? 
He says, in this house, of course, referring to this body, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. As much as we put it on, we shall not be found naked. And so here's, here's in summary the idea. Paul is essentially saying that, look, we die, we shed this body, but that is not our natural or desired state. We were not made to be disembodied. We were not made to be without some physical existence. And so what we long for as believers is, and our ultimate hope is, this future resurrection. This time when we receive our glorified bodies. In the meantime, we are in a state that can be defined as being naked. In other words, without our resurrection body. And so the point here is that when we die, we are shed from this body, but still with all of the saints who have gone before us, we are waiting for this permanent dwelling place, this spiritual body, this body imperishable, indestructible, this body that's conformed to the body of Christ's glory. We're waiting for that still. That's our ultimate longing. Now, I just want to make a comment before moving on. And we're spending the longest time here. We're going to go through the others more quickly. There are a couple of passages, though, that uh, suggest uh, that we're not in some unrecognizable state and, and do suggest that are rather curious. You're probably thinking of them. Uh, one would be in Matthew 17 at the Mount of Transfiguration. And there were Moses and Elijah that appeared speaking to Christ and they were recognizable to the disciples. Now that in and of itself is interesting because neither none of those disciples had ever seen Moses or Elijah. But, but so in some way, they were given that understanding or the appearance of Moses and Elijah was such that the disciples knew precisely uh, who it is that Christ was speaking to. Also in Genesis 5 and 2 Kings and Genesis 5, we have the account of Enoch who in a physical body was taken up to heaven. And in 2 Kings, the same with Elijah. Uh, but regarding this state, there's not really a whole lot more that can be said about it. It's, it's quite curious. Again, as I mentioned, there is more mystery than there is clarity. Uh, but we can say this, though there is a separation of the body and the soul, and whatever our existence is, it's not a resurrection body or some uh, precursor to the resurrection body. Uh, but we can also say that there is full consciousness. Again, that we don't just go off into a nothingness or some vague kind of existence, but there is a full personal consciousness, not some soul sleep that was, was mentioned earlier. There is a way that we are aware and interact with our environment, uh, even in this disembodied state. Let me give you just a couple of passages here very quickly. Uh, one is in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. This is a picture here of the martyrs before the throne of God. Martyrs that came out of this great period of, or this intense period of uh, to the tribulation. It says in verse 9 of Revelation 6, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Interesting. 
uh, because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on earth? And to each of them was given a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. The same multitude is referred to again in chapter 7, uh, verses 9 through 17. So there is a very conscious existence. There is a very a conscious interaction with God. There is a very conscious awareness uh, at this phase, even of what is going on on earth. And even though it's referred to here as the souls of those who had died in verse 9, there is a physical kind of language used in that they are given white robes. And, uh, and so what is going on here? Well, it's possible to take this physical language, and many do take it this way, most actually, or many, as anthropomorphic. In other words, it's, it's ascribing this, this language naturally of a physical reality, though it's a non-physical existence. It's probably best to see this as a non-physical existence with corollary capabilities uh, that is described in physical language. So, for example, we see this with angels who are ministering spirits, and yet they're described as, in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 11, as standing before the throne uh, and so forth. So this doesn't really answer the question. It does show that there's full consciousness. There's full awareness. There are descriptions uh, that have physical, that would imply physical capabilities. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it's, there's not a lot of clarity uh, that is added to it. Again, we do have with this idea of consciousness, also, again, the Mount of Transfiguration uh, with Moses and Elijah. That's very unique. Uh, situation, but we do see that there. And in terms of body, we do see a rather odd situation I would just make note of in the Old Testament, and it's in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 6 through 19. And this is when Saul, near the end of his kingdom, God was no longer speaking to him, no longer revealing himself through Samuel the prophet. Saul gets a little nutty. He's fearful as he's going into battle. He goes and he finds the witch of Endor and asks her to conjure up the uh, Saul so that he can ask him uh, a question. And God, in this very unique work, uh, allows Saul, Samuel, to come back to appear uh, to Saul and to speak to him and, and essentially to rebuke him. But again, that was a very unique situation uh, that God uh, did to rebuke Saul. Um, that certainly doesn't tell us much, even still, about the existence of those who died uh, afterwards, other than to say uh, that there were still there was still a conscious existence, there was still a personhood and understanding and interaction and all of those things uh, after they died. So first, there is a separation. What does happen? Well, there is some separation from the body and the spirit or the soul. That 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 part of us of uh, self awareness and interaction and so forth. Uh, that there is then a full consciousness in the presence of God, but there's no indication, as a matter of fact, using uh, Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 5, there's no indication 
that it is any kind of intermediate physical existence, although it, it doesn't mean we're free floating spirits. There is still identity. There is uh, still some kind of interaction that, uh, that core is corollary to physical abilities, much, much again, like the angels, uh, like the angels. But thirdly here, then believers are immediately in the presence of Jesus Christ. And this, this goes with the idea of consciousness, but is looking at it more specifically. We can say this, that when a believer dies, they are immediately in the presence of Jesus Christ. Of course, there are many passages with that. In 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul says, We are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So even though he's not saying that there is a physical existence, he, he could have he could have made that clear in some way, but he's already saying, no, we're, we're naked. We're, we're, we're not yet uh, in possession of our resurrection bodies, but we're also are not uh, nowhere. We are in the presence of the Lord and enjoying fellowship with him. And that's why he could also tell the Philippian church that it's much better to depart and to be with the Lord. It's better to depart and to be with the Lord because departing to be with the Lord is to be immediately in his presence, enjoying fellowship with him. And so whatever the, the specific conditions are, it is to be with the Lord and to know him and to enjoy him. Uh, the little... Uh, uh, another part to this, it actually would be Jesus's words to the Pharisees and the leaders when they were challenging him about the resurrection. You remember what he said? He says, am I the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Exactly. So it's not some, uh, it's not some, again, non-existence. They are living. So when we die, Jesus said to uh, Martha in John chapter 11, that if you if you believe in Christ, that even though you, you, you will never die, actually, that you will never die, meaning that you never go out of this conscious fellowship with the Lord. So there's freedom from the presence of sin. There's communion with the Godhead. So whatever it is, there is conscious existence with the Lord. There is number four, the fellowship with those saints who have gone before, that they're all there. As a matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 12 you know, we're going kind of quick here. There's more to say on all this, but I'm just trying to give the big picture here. In Revelation chapter, or excuse me, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, he says, but you, speaking to believers here, that he, he says, you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriad of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all the earth and the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks uh, better than the blood of Abel. In other words, uh, all the redeemed and all the saints are there. They're there together. They're with Christ. And we are a part of, of that company and, and death. Uh, and this topic is then into enter into a fuller experience of that company. You're, they're there though. Where are the dead? Where are the souls of the righteous made perfect? They are with God. And we are a part of that community and that congregation. Uh, this intermediate state is also referred to in a couple of different ways. Uh, one is as paradise and is rest. 
So he describes this place where these souls go, where we go, and those who have gone before as paradise and rest. Uh, interesting, the term paradise is a loan word from Persia, which is it's interesting for this sense, which was often used to speak of gardens and parks, even like royal gardens, the gardens of royalty, these lush, lavish, green, delightful places. In the Septuagint, that word was used to translate the idea of garden, even the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. That was later used in the Septuagint as well uh, by the prophets to speak of a garden. That's to, to, to refer to that place uh, that God had originally designed of lush flourishing and, and lavish blessing and particularly, and this is the key, uh, his presence. So again, just three times it's used in the New Testament. You'll remember to the thief on the cross, Jesus said to the thief that today, the one who had believed in him, one didn't, one did, to the one who did, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. When Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 4, was caught up to the third heaven, he was caught up into paradise he said in Revelation 2, 7, the relocation of the redeemed who eat from the tree of life is paradise. Interestingly, this is calling back on this idea of that joyful existence that man had in the presence of God in the garden was lost, but is restored uh, once we return, the, the, the redeemed return to be back with him. So while drawing on the imagery and reality of the Garden of Eden and the future garden, the main emphasis, however, really in this idea of paradise is being in the presence of God in immediate fellowship with him, immediate fellowship with him, described as paradise. Uh, one quickly, other way it's described is as rest. It's as rest. It's described as paradise and as rest. Hebrews 4.3, he talks about believers now have entered into that rest in verse 3, but he also says in verse 10, 10, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his work. So when we enter into the realities of salvation in Christ, there is a rest we experience, but it is anticipation of the fuller experience of the rest that we will have at the end of the age. In Revelation 14, 13, uh, he says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who died in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Simple meaning is that those who die in the Lord are, and I'm quoting here, from that moment onward in a state of blessedness because they cease from their labors and enter on the reward of the righteous. Death is for them an emancipation from evil and the introduction into a state of happiness. So what can we say about those who die in the Lord? We can say that they are the body and the soul are separated, that there is a, in that separation a full conscious existence, that this conscious existence is in the present and an immediate fellowship with the, with the Lord and with all of those who have gone forth. And it is one of such joy and blessedness that is described as paradise and rest. That's what we can say. There's not a whole lot more beyond that that we can say. What about unbelievers? Well, unbelievers go to a place of judgment. 
Uh, let me just give you one passage. I'm not going to belabor a lot of this, but 2 Peter 2.9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the under, unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So there is a place of judgment where unbelievers are. We're not going to go there for time's sake, but one passage, you're probably wondering why we didn't spend more time there, but... Uh, and that is in Luke chapter 16, verses 9 through 31. And that is the rich man and Lazarus. And, and Lazarus is said to have gone to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man has gone to a place of torment where he describes the, the heat of the flames and the desire for water. And he wants Lazarus to come over from Abraham's bosom, a reference to being in the place of the righteous and God's favor and God's presence and to come down and give him some kind of relief. And of course, the word comes that he cannot do that because there is a great chasm that separates these two places. And then the man asked him to go warn his family so that they would not come there. And essentially it is they have the word of the prophets, the law and the prophets. If they won't listen to them, then they won't listen. Whether that is a parable or a real event is a matter of debate. I think at the very least we could say that it represents reality. And those realities are what in these other passages that we looked at are consistent with both the, with uh, particularly uh, the New Testament idea that there is an awareness of what's going on. There is a consciousness. Uh, there is a real experience of that world, that next world. And there is even awareness of things that in this intermediate state uh, are going on on earth. That's that's possible. Uh, but really, when you look at that, that we'd want to be very careful, even though that we do see that it's not to say that there is the case of them being interested in each individual life and love when left behind. That's not the picture that we see. Uh, we see that in, in terms of uh, the rich man who wanted them to be warned uh, in head revelation. What we see is is a concern for God's glory and judgment over the events on earth. They want God to judge the world in righteousness. Uh, they're not. There's no picture there of, you know, personal concerns that reflect all of those things that concern us here on earth. So what is the point of all of this? Uh, what are the ways? Let me just give you just a few, and this is where we'll end. <clears throat> and I won't look at passages and all these. I'm just going to state them. Uh, here's a few. One is that we need to realize we are immortal beings. We are eternal beings, not eternal uh, in God, the sense of God, who has no beginning and no end, we have a beginning, but we are internal in the sense of that we have no end. We are immortal beings. Our true person is not this body. What matters is our soul. That's what matters. That's where we sin. That's where we know. That's where we're forgiven. That's where in Christ, that's where he makes us a new creation in Christ and gives us life. That's where we fellowship and interact with God. That is the source out of which we live in this world and demonstrate which kingdom we're a part of. We are immortal beings. In other words, then we should pay far more attention to the care of our souls than the care of our bodies. We should be far more cautious about what is happening to us and ourselves in terms of who we are in our spiritual walk with the Lord than we are with our bodies. Number two, realize that this world is not our home. We say this all the time, but we can never be reminded enough. This world is temporary. It is not our home. We are passing through. 
our home, believers, is future. It is to come. We have a kingdom to come. So we don't want to get too lost uh, in the things here that can distract us from that reality. Number three, we should view others as eternal souls and not simply bodies. We look at them not merely externally, but who they really are, someone who will either live eternally in the presence of God in joy and blessing or excluded from that presence in judgment and in punishment. Fourthly is this. It provides comfort and it provides warning. It is a warning to those outside of Christ that when you die, that's it. So to neglect the eternal realities of the soul for the passing pleasures of this world is of course, foolish. It is a warning to say that when you die, game is over in terms of uh, the possibility of knowing the Lord and knowing forgiveness of your sins. So if you don't know the Lord, uh, now is the time to repent, to come to him who is more than willing to receive every truly repentant sinner who believes in him and to go in and know the reality of paradise like that thief on the cross. And it's a comfort to us who do believe in Christ, who do know him, because as we die in Christ and for those who go before us who have died in Christ, we can stand next to that grave of the loved one and rejoice that they truly are in the presence of God. They truly do have been removed, freed from the presence of the sin, from their sin, and that we will join them in that community of believers and the saints, uh, both from the Old Testament and the New uh, and then we will enjoy together the presence of God and fellowship with him. Well, that is just a, a very broad, general look at the intermediate state. What happens when we die? Again, the focus isn't so much on the immediate in Scripture. It's, it's always looking forward to this end, this future day of the resurrection, of the resurrection. And that is our ultimate hope. But we can't have confidence and comfort that death is not the end. Death is not nothingness, but even still, we can even look forward to it uh, because we know that we're freed from the bondage that we experience here and the corruption of this body. And like Paul said in Romans 8, we groan, uh, but we anticipate the glory that is ours uh, in Christ. And with that, we'll build on that a little bit more when we talk about heaven. Uh, but let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll meet next week. And we'll look very briefly, obviously very briefly, at the millennial kingdom, at the millennial kingdom. But let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and for your promises. And Lord, we are not surprised to run into mystery when we come to your word. We're not surprised that there are things that uh, we don't understand very fully. But you give us enough. You give us what we need to know for our comfort, for our courage in this world, for our wisdom. And it is enough to know that we live forever. It is enough to know that there is both blessedness and punishment uh, for all who uh, die. It is enough to know that the body in the grave is not the end of the story. And it is ultimately enough to know that in Christ we can have forgiveness of sins and that we who have that can anticipate rest and freedom from the struggles of this world, that we can anticipate the full delight and expression of your glory 
And we long to see that. And that is what we as believers long for, to be freed from sin, to delight in your glory, to offer to, your, to you without hindrance and without fail all of who we are, heart, mind, soul, and ultimately even in our body for your everlasting glory. Thank you, our God, for the, your precious and magnificent promises. And we pray in the name of him who died and rose again for us, in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, beloved. We'll uh, see you uh, next week. God bless you.